Good morning. I'd like for you to again bow your heads with me as we seek the Lord just one more time before we open his word. Loving Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, Lord, again, we ask for your presence. Lord, I pray that you will especially speak through me this morning. Let there be no self in the way this morning, Lord, but speak to me the things that I need to hear. Speak to us the things that we need to hear. Soften our hearts and our minds that we will be receptive. For, Lord, we want to spend eternity with you, and we know that you have a plan for our salvation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Great Controversy. This past week and a half, we have been listening to Peter Gregory as he has shared and unveiled the Great Controversy as it has progressed through time. And I know that if I were to ask for a show of hands this morning, that every hand would quickly go up if I said, how many believe that we are in the midst of a great controversy? I know that if I were to say, how many of you believe that we live in the last days? Again, those hands would go up quickly. But I don't want you to raise your hands right now, but I want to ask you one question very seriously. How many of you live like you believe you live in the last hours of earth's history? The great controversy is taking place. The great controversy is not taking place all around us. The great controversy is taking place within each one of us. We are living in the last days. It's very obvious, not just in the things taking place in God's church, but in the things that are taking place in the world. Jesus told us in Luke 21, verse 26, that in the last days, men's hearts would be failing them for fear. And further on down in verse 34, he told us, he warned us to be careful, to be watchful, lest we be overcome with surfeiting, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And as we look all around us today, my brothers and sisters, I believe that we can see these things taking place. We can see people who are being overcome by the cares of this life. In Matthew 24, Jesus said four times to be careful that we be not deceived. And the fourth time he made that statement, he said to be careful because if possible, even the very elect would be deceived. Now, I think that if we look at Bible prophecy and we follow it on down through time, we believe that we, the Seventh-day Adventist church, are the remnant church. We believe that we are God's elect people. So I believe that we could say that this statement is speaking directly to us. Jesus says, be careful because if possible, even the very elect will be deceived. You see, I believe that God's church in these last days is truly the remnant church, is truly his elect people. I believe that God's church in these last days has the truth. But my brothers and sisters, I believe there's big problems. And I want to just share with you how I believe those problems have taken place. As we look back over the course of the history of this church when it first began, we realize that this church was brought together from a culmination of people coming from all walks of life, various denominations, bringing God's word and the truth all together in one place. But as time progressed... 
it seems that one very important factor began to be eliminated from a message that was being given to the world. And that factor was the factor of a decision of heart. You see, it seems that we went through a period of time where the doctrines and the truths that we had to give seemed to be so important that we forgot the very basic and most important issue of all, and that was complete and total surrender to Jesus Christ. And so we came into a group, we came into a generation of the do's and the don'ts. A generation of parents who raised their children telling them, don't do this, don't do that. We don't do this. We don't believe in that. We don't do this. And children growing up feeling as though they were being pounded with something that was missing. And so they grew up and they had children. We are their children. And when we grew up, we grew up and our parents did not want us to live in that atmosphere. Our parents did not want us to feel that they were telling us, don't do this, don't do that. And so now we've swung to the other end of the pendulum. Now we've swung to the point where we're over here on the far side and we don't want to tell anybody anything that needs to be done. We don't want to point out any sin because we need to learn to be loving and accepting. And so we live in this circumstance today. We're caught. I remember a few years ago, as I sat in a church office, a very clean-cut gentleman with a beard came in to visit me. And as he walked into the room, I thought, now what could this brother want today? No one knows the church is open. I just happened to be here for a minute. What could he want with me? And he walked in, and he had an agenda that he wanted to share with me that day. He wanted to let me know that I was on the way to being lost because I didn't have a beard. Because all of God's true men wore beards. And he told me that, you know, brother, you look like a woman. Now, I sat there and I didn't want to be offended at that, but I was kind of thinking to myself, isn't this interesting? My salvation is dependent on whether or not I have hair on my face. And I thought about how we've come to a point where we have two opposite sides. We have a group of people who are so hung up on doctrine and truth and giving them the way it should be that they're so far out there in left field that every time they come into a conversation with someone, they can't help but try and correct that person's life. What's the problem with that aspect of the truth? The problem with that aspect of the truth, my friends, is that the problem is as we go home to our homes if we're living that way. But you see, the real truth, the real influence of Jesus Christ has not penetrated into our hearts. And then we go home behind closed doors where those people don't see us anymore. We come into the realm of family and suddenly the real us begins to appear. The one who has not gained the victory over their temper, their impatience, their appetite, and on and on. And then we have the other group. The other group who's so tired of having somebody tell them what to do all the time that they don't want any rules anymore. They don't want any rules. We just want to come together and praise God. We want to have a good time together. And so we come together and that's all we're worried about is praise Jesus, praise Jesus. We want a Savior, but we don't want a Lord. Now, you know, the things that I'm sharing with you today are very, very basic and fundamental. 
And in fact, some of the things that I say today might step on your toes. And I hope that I, I have prayed and, and asked the Lord enough that as I say it, I'm not offensive. And as I say it, you don't feel like that I'm looking directly at you and, and pointing out your sin. You see, I'm familiar with that. I, I preached a sermon a few years ago that was broadcast on television. It was a sermon that had to do with the health message. I know how the message of God can penetrate our hearts when the truth really strikes home. I made a statement in general. I said that sometimes men, when we stop taking care of ourselves, we have what I call the chest of drawers syndrome. That's when our chest and our upper body mass slips down into our drawers. Now, I want you to know that I received a few weeks after that sermon a very pointed letter from a man who somehow thought I knew who he was and where he lived, and my sermon was directed directly at him. You see, sometimes the truth, it really cuts. Sometimes the truth really hits home, and sometimes we don't like it. I remember sitting in a congregation a few years ago, And the the pastor began to preach a sermon, and he was a very loving man, but his truth was very cutting. And you know, sometimes we go to church and we're listening to the sermon, and and we're thinking of so-and-so that we sure wish was here today so they could hear this, or, or somebody else that this applies to. But have you ever been in that moment, in that time, when you sat in that congregation, and that sermon was preached, and without ever pointing or looking in your direction, you knew that sermon was directly for you. I sat there that day, and as that man spoke, suddenly I started looking around to see if people were noticing me, because I was really beginning to feel that he was talking directly to me. And I began wondering if everybody was noticing my response and how I was beginning to shrink down in my chair. The truth sometimes cuts like a knife. But brothers and sisters, sometimes we need the truth. You see, we've come to a point where we wonder what happens. We go out and we present evangelistic series and we bring people into the church and six months later they're gone out the back door. What's happened? Could it be possibly that those people have been convinced, yes, yes, you're right, your doctrines are right, and, and we're convinced, and because of that, we want to join your church. But no one's ever taught them how to have a real experience with Jesus Christ. Amen. No one's ever shared with them the importance of how to surrender to God. When we look at the great controversy, we recognize that it began clear back in heaven with Lucifer. And I want you to turn with me now in your Bibles as we look at that scene again. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. It all began in heaven. Peter has laid it out for us and shown us through this past week where it began and what happened. But I want to show you one thing that I think is very interesting as the great controversy began. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12 The Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, 
I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, I want you to think of this. We always say, what was Lucifer's problem? And what's the word we always get? Pride. Exactly. I want to take this a step further with you today. I want you to notice that Lucifer said in his heart. The great controversy began in the heart of a created being. And as Peter pointed out earlier this week, God did not create an imperfect being. Something took place in his heart. And we can't describe it. We can't really understand what happened. But something took place in Lucifer's heart. And suddenly those feelings of pride began to rise up. But I want you to notice something in Lucifer's heart. Because you see it in all the world around you. And perhaps you might see it in yourself. Lucifer had pride. Yes, he did. But Lucifer, as we look down through these couple of verses, we find that word I is continually there. And we find that Lucifer had one thought, one goal in mind, and that was Lucifer wanted to do what he wanted to do. Mm. This is no longer what would God have me to do today. Lucifer says, I want to do this. This is what I want. And my brothers and sisters, from Lucifer... On down to today, we have a world of people who want to do what they want to do. And so we have a world of Christianity where we see people claiming to be Christians, but they have no power in their life. They're wondering why they cannot gain the victory over various aspects of their life. And bringing that point reminds me of one other thing. We live in a world of people today who would rather sit and debate the issue of whether or not we can be perfect and overcome all sin than to sit down and seek God's word to know whether he really will give them victory over all sin. You see, the Bible is filled with promises of how God wants to deliver us from sin. In Matthew 121, we are told that they would call his name Jesus because he would save them what? From their sins. The Bible plainly tells us that there will be none but holy beings in the kingdom of heaven. I don't believe that Jesus is going to wave a magic wand and suddenly we're going to all change that character. I believe that Jesus came and lived a life to show us that through the power of God in us, we can overcome in our lives. The book of Revelation is called the book of overcomers. Do we believe it? It amazes me. I sat in a Sabbath school class one day and I listened to people discuss this debate. Let me ask you a question. The God of the universe created everything that you see around you, the world, the stars, the sun, the moon, the beauty of nature all around us. His son, Jesus Christ, came down to this earth. He resurrected men from the dead. 
He caused the blind to see. He made the lame to walk. Do you think that the God who had the power to do all of those things does not have the power to give you victory over some little sin in your life? Oh, my brothers and sisters, today, let us not deny the power of God. But let us recognize that it's all taking place right here in our hearts. And so I want us to look at the definition of the word heart as we continue. The the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, Collegiate Dictionary, gives us six definitions of heart. The first two definitions deal with the physical aspects of the heart that hollow muscular organ that pumps blood through the body. But the next four give us these definitions. The third one says that the heart is the personality, the disposition, the intellect. The fourth says that the heart is the emotional or moral nature. The fifth says that the heart is one's innermost character Feelings or inclinations. Does that sound familiar? Have we been talking about thoughts and feelings and character? All of these things, my brothers and sisters, develop within the heart. And the last one says that the heart is the central, innermost part. The great controversy is not something that we come into a theater and watch up on the screen. The great controversy is taking place in your heart and in mine. What is God looking for? What is God looking for in His people? I want to do just a quick little study on the heart with you if we can. And it's all going to be taken from the book of Deuteronomy. So if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy, and we're going to begin in chapter 4 and verse 39. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 39, we're going to do just three or four texts here and look at what God is asking from our hearts today. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 39, the Bible puts it this way, Know therefore this day and consider in thine heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. God is asking us, His created beings, those that He loved so much that He gave His only Son that we might have the opportunity to be restored. He says, recognize in your heart that I am God and there is no other. Step number one, recognize that God is God. Go over to Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. I believe we heard this text the other night. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Again, the Bible says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. i got to ask you a question right here. How much is all? Everything. You've been reading your dictionaries. You know, it was a few months ago in my little church up in Northern California, we were having prayer meeting, and we were reading through the book Steps to Christ. And as we got to one paragraph, it talked about surrendering all to Jesus. One of my members, a very educated man, asked the question, but how much is all? Now, I thought to myself, well, you know, that's a simple three little 
a little three-letter word, and I thought it was pretty inclusive and pretty self-explanatory. But I'll go home and I'll look in my dictionary to make sure that I really understand what it means. And sure enough, lo and behold, I went and I opened up the dictionary to that little three-letter word, and it said everything. Now, for those of you who may feel as that man did, and you're not quite sure, I've got a perfect illustration for you this morning. When I was in the eighth grade, I had a friend. His name was Michael Menacucci. Now, Michael Menacucci was a little bigger than me, and we were the best of friends. And every Sabbath afternoon, either I'd be at his house or he'd be at mine. Well, one Sabbath, he came over to my house for lunch. Now, I discovered as I was friends with Mike that Mike could eat a lot more food than I could. And so that day, my mom had kind of left us to the kitchen. And so we made some sandwiches. Now, we started whipping out peanut butter and jelly and cheese sandwiches. And we were making sandwiches. And, and I had eaten about four sandwiches and some chips and had some milk. And, and I thought, you know, that's a pretty good lunch. Well, Menacucci had finished off his four sandwiches. And he looked at me and he said, do you got anything else to eat? I said, well, yeah, like what? He said, well, you know, like cereal or something. I said, cereal? Now, I did not want to go over and open the cabinet with cereal because in that cabinet was my favorite cereal. <laughs> Cocoa Puffs. Cocoa Puffs. Now, I was afraid that if I went over there, Menacucci would see those Cocoa Puffs and he would want that box. But I, I had no other choice. I walked over and I opened the cabinet. I was going to try and keep it, you know, maybe I could pull out some Cheerios or something and he wouldn't notice. Well, he followed me to the cabinet. And as I opened it, oh, you've got Cocoa Puffs. Hey, why don't you get those out? Okay. The Cocoa Puffs box hadn't even been opened yet. So we took the Cocoa Puffs over to the table and we sat down. I wasn't really that hungry. But Menacucci poured his first bowl of Cocoa Puffs and then the second bowl of Cocoa Puffs. And I began to realize that if I didn't have a bowl of Cocoa Puffs, I may not have any Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> and so I poured a bowl of Cocoa Puffs. And then I watched as Menacucci poured all the Cocoa Puffs out of the box. I watched the last Cocoa Puff come out of my box and he set it down. He ate all my Cocoa Puffs. When God says He wants all of us, He wants everything down to the last Cocoa Puff. How much is all? All is everything. All is everything that you have. All, that ever, all is everything that you ever want to be, everything you hope to be. He wants everything. Let's look at another couple of texts. Go to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 16. Listen now to what God says to us. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now, he's given a, a request here, but you look down in verse 16 and he says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. 
You see, God recognized that this was a weak people. And they needed to realize where the source of power came from. And so he says, look, don't don't put on the front. Don't go out there and pretend that you've given me everything. He says, I want the innermost part of your heart. I want the very depths of your soul. So don't pretend. Don't give me this outward sign. I want it from the inside out. And look right over at chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in His due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn, thy wine, and thine oil." Now, we know that God is not just speaking of a literal rain here. He's talking about a spiritual rain, the latter rain that is to fall upon his people in these last days. But that latter rain, my brothers and sisters, cannot fall on you or me if we have not received Jesus Christ into our heart and if he does not totally rule on the throne of our hearts. Okay, so we we recognize what God is asking We sense that God is asking for something from us. So what's the problem? Why is there a hang-up? Why can't we seem to grasp and get through and, and accomplish this victory that we're looking for? Because I know we're all looking for it. You see, I know that each one of us deals and battles with areas in their life that they want to overcome. If we really recognize what we can be, it bothers us when we are not living the way we know we could. And so we want to know what we can do. What is it that I can do to really get to that next level, Lord? Show me. Proverbs 23, verse 7, tells us that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. It seems that God is contradicting Himself. One minute He's telling us to keep our hearts with all diligence, but now look what He says to us. In Jeremiah chapter 13 and verse 23, He says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil? Now, wait a minute, Lord, you, ju- you just told me a few books back that I'm to keep my heart with all diligence. How am I going to keep my heart with all diligence if you're telling me I can't change myself? How am I going to do that? Now, I want you to look again at Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. Now God tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you in this room think that you're really bad? All right. How many of you think that you're just kind of bad. See, I, I know that every morning we don't get up in the mirror and we walk into that mirror and we look in the mirror and we go, desperately wicked heart. 
But you see, God reminds us that we don't even know our own hearts. My brothers and sisters, listen carefully because this is where the practicality of the gospel begins. God asked us earlier in our text to recognize that He is God. When we recognize who He is, what He is, where He is, we begin to see ourselves as we really are. You can look in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and you can see Isaiah's experience. When he saw the Lord, it says, high and lifted up on the throne of the universe, heavenly angels surrounding him. And then he said, woe is me, for I am a man undone, a man of unclean lips. And when he goes through that whole dissertation, he comes to the end and he says, why? Because I have seen the King of Kings. You see, when you and I really see God, where he is and who he is, we begin to see ourselves as we really are. Up until that time, we're playing a game. We're phony. We're pretending that we have something we don't. And we're not wanting to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. But unfortunately, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians to examine ourselves lest we be in the faith. He was a good friend of mine. He was a family man. He was a pastor of his local church. And all the time that I worked with him, I saw nothing but a man who loved God, a man who was loving to other people, a man who was concerned about the needs and the problems of others. But then suddenly, to my shock and to my surprise, this man left his wife and his family for another woman. It wasn't just a one-time fling. He was gone never to return again. Did he know his own heart? Did he recognize that within him was that potential? Do you know your own heart today? You see, we can't possibly know our own hearts. In Psalms 139, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, there is an answer, my brothers and sisters. We don't know our own hearts. We can't know our own hearts. But we can submit our lives to the one who does, the one who created us. And we can come to him and we can say, oh, God, you know me. You know me better than I know myself. You've numbered the very hairs on my head. Oh, God, please search this heart. Point out what needs to be changed in my life. And then, as David said in Psalms 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Change my heart, O God. Change me. But Lord, help me recognize that I am weak. Help me recognize that without You in my life I am nothing. Lord, change this vile and wicked heart. Two disciples that I believe represent what we are looking at in the last days. We have Peter and we have Judas. Brothers and sisters, both of those men were sinners. And my Bible says in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I want you to recognize that in the lives of each one of those men, that something drastic took place. 
Judas was drawn to Jesus. He saw the loveliness of Christ's character. Judas had very good attributes in himself. But Judas had one, one sin that he would not let go of. It was greed. On the outside, Judas looked like a perfect Christian. He looked like, of all the disciples, he looked like to be the one that could be a leader, a true leader of the church because he had the character on the outside. Peter would be the last man that you would think could accomplish anything for God. He was overzealous. He was prideful. He was arrogant. He was always in an argument with somebody. He was always striving for the best place. Judas was much more subtle in his approach, much more deceptive. But you see, those two men, when it came down to that final hour, when they both betrayed Jesus, and they did, Peter fell on the rock. Oh, he said, oh, God, forgive me. He said, forgive me, God. I've, I've, I've broken your trust. I've let you down. I've seen myself now as I truly am. Wretched, poor, miserable, blind and naked. Save me from myself. He was broken on the rock, Jesus Christ. And he was converted as Jesus had prayed for him. And he went out and he spread the gospel to the world. Judas, on the other hand, felt the call of the Spirit upon his heart, constantly drawing and seeking, wanting his heart. But yet, he held back one percent, one tiny little area of his life, and was lost. You see, my brothers and sisters, it's not going to be the big and great events in our life that mark our character. It's going to be the little day-to-day experiences, the moments when we surrender when no one else is looking, when no one else sees who we really are behind closed doors. We can't change our own hearts, but we can do the one thing that the Bible has commended us to do, James 4, verse 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. We must come to the searcher of hearts. We must allow the one who created our heart to work in our heart because he has promised, brothers and sisters, he has promised that he will give us a new heart. In closing, look with me at one text, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. God Himself gives us this word. These come, these words come from the lips of God in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. He says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. My brothers and sisters, God wants to make the change within us, but we have to submit and allow him to do the operation. You see, we need a heart transplant. We don't need to fix this heart. We need a new one. And you know, you need to look at it in the same realm as you would look at a physical heart transplant. 
It would be ridiculous for you or I to go into an operating room and lay down on a table and go, okay, I'm going to do a heart transplant, get the heart ready over there, have all the instruments ready for me, and I'm going to do the surgery. Give me the scalpel. And so you lay there and you go, okay, administer the anesthesia. Obviously, we could not do our own heart transplant. And so, with the spiritual realm, we cannot transplant our own spiritual heart. Our heart is desperately wicked, and we don't know it. But God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I know. And I want to give you a new heart. You see, really... The secret to overcoming in your life is not that big. It's learning how to surrender to the one with all the power. I want to submit my heart to Jesus Christ. In Proverbs 23 and verse 26, God says, My son, give me thine heart. And as I close, I'd just like to share a song with you. I hope that you will listen carefully to the words of this song because I know that each one of us longs for victory in our lives. But the only way that we are ever going to gain total victory in our lives, my friends, is for total and complete surrender to Jesus Christ. And sometimes you might even stumble Start losing your way, maybe make a mistake And suddenly everything crumbles And you don't understand how it all could be You're asking yourself, how could it happen to me? Well, the battle you're facing, you can't face alone No, you can't fight the enemy all on your own. There's a lesson that you will learn from your plight. There's a path that is wrong and a path that is right. Oh, the greatest victory you will ever know is total surrender to the one who loves you so. Your heart's getting colder, you're slipping away The things you once loved you don't care for today You need a revival deep in your soul It's time you submit to the Spirit's control Now there's only one way to the kingdom above It's faith in the one whom He gave in His love Well, the battle you're facing, you can't face alone. No, you can't fight the enemy all on your own. There's a lesson that you will learn from your plight. There's a path that is wrong and a path that is right. Oh, the greatest victory you will ever know is total surrender to the one who loves 
you sow. Oh, the greatest victory you will ever know is total surrender to the one who loves you so. Let's bow our heads as we close. Loving Father in heaven, as we have recognized our need today, as we have opened your word, as we have seen you as how you truly are, as we have looked at ourselves and recognized, Lord, that our hearts are desperately wicked unless they are submitted and surrendered to you. And Lord, when those hearts are submitted and surrendered to you, you have promised us that you will give us a new heart a heart of flesh, a heart that has feeling and compassion and love, a heart that can be touched by your mercy. Lord, we ask for that heart today. I pray for each person in this room today, Lord. I don't know them individually, but you do. You know their needs. You know their circumstances. You know the trials that they face. I pray this morning for the power of your spirit to work in their lives, in their hearts. Oh, God, give us the victory. May we be the overcomers that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.